0: So welcome back once more to our study on Matthew. Today we're going to be picking up on Matthew chapter seven. So we're continuing our study looking at the Gospel of Matthew, um, and in particular we're looking at it through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is what what features of Jesus' ministry, of Jesus' teaching, do we learn from the Sermon on the Mount um, both in the content that Jesus himself is teaching, but then also in looking at some of the sources that Matthew is using and composing his gospel and how he brings these sources together in the sermon. Um, so we, we get kind of a mixture of Jesus's own teachings in this passage, and then also Matthew's composition of how he works with um, the Gospel of Mark, as, we've, uh, as you've already studied before in previous lessons, um, and then also how he uses the source that is commonly referred to as Q, um, which is verses that we find shared with the Gospel of Luke. So today, um, as with all of the other lessons, I want us to start by first just refreshing our minds one, one more time. At this point, it's redundant, but I, I want to do it anyways. Um, is to refresh our minds on what we've labeled the Methian contrast, and that is the mathean contrast is paying attention to the idea that um, the logic that applies to this world falls apart whenever we take it and we apply it to the world to come. Um, that is the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Um, So essentially what that means is that whatever things make sense logically in this world and that we would think in this world such as that whoever has the most money is the wealthiest person, whoever has the most money is the richest or the luckiest person. that logic works in the on the earthly realm, but then if we transfer that into the heavenly realm, it fails to make sense. Um, and the flip side of that coin is then exactly the opposite that if we take the logic of the kingdom of heaven and we attempt to bring it into the logic of the earth to those who think only according to this world, then that logic begins to break down. Um, and so we take the Beatitudes um, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. We have the, the hunger and thirsting part And then we have the fulfillment part that comes in the kingdom of heaven. Um, So we have this contrast that exists between essentially thinking according to the world and thinking according to the kingdom of heaven. Um, And Matthew calls us back to that um, throughout his gospel. And then Jesus calls us back to that in the Sermon on the Mount at multiple points for us to think think through what that means for those, particularly um, in the audience for the Sermon on the Mount, what it means for those who in this present world are facing difficulties and are facing hardships um, and what it will look like for them in the kingdom of heaven for enduring um, these hardships, especially at points in the Sermon on the Mount where um, enduring these hardships, where they are endured for the sake of the kingdom itself. Uh, Today's passage is um, particularly difficult for us to talk about, or maybe not difficult, maybe just uncomfortable. Um, it's, It's a hard passage, both in the content That is discussed, so the actual meaning of everything that we're going to look at. Um, But it's also a hard passage for the structure of it, and you'll see that as we get into it. That the the uncomfortable content part um, is that um, Jesus touches on a lot of subjects here that, um, in any ways, modern audiences are uncomfortable speaking um, on these topics in general, and then we're uncomfortable thinking about doing them for for these purposes, and so. to speak more directly, um, something we've already touched on in previous examples uh, in previous weeks is working for a reward or doing something in order to gain a reward. And that comes up in some of the previous Sermon on the Mount passages. And to modern audiences, that um, that can feel uncomfortable if I'm only trying to please God in order that I can receive a a reward in the kingdom of heaven. Um, So we've talked about that in previous um, weeks, but some of those same same themes come up this week um, in really strong and significant ways. So it it speaks about rewards and um, the things that we will gain in the kingdom in a way that we're, as a modern audience, a modern religious audience, probably aren't comfortable speaking about them. Um, It also talks about judgmentalism and being judgmental. um, So that brings up a whole discussion of... Is judgment ever appropriate? When is judgment appropriate? Has judgment been d- used too loosely? Has judgment been used too strictly um, in the religious communities? Um, there's actually some name calling in these verses that we get um, references to uh, calling people, people groups referring to them as pigs and as dogs. Um, and so that's uh, that that language in itself is problematic for us. Um, And then we have um, just the difficulty to accept um, just the application of it for us us ourselves. It's difficult to apply some of these things, um, not in any moral or ethical sense, in a practical sense of, for example, we've already mentioned judgment. So it becomes um, somewhat difficult to have to apply the criteria of not judging others and not judging um, things according to this world. We can speak easily about it being important but it's um, difficult to actually put those into practice structurally, you're going to see that this verse is very um, difficult to work with, and I think it's going to come across in my presentation of it. Um, There is a way, and I'm sure you can find many sermons and many lessons that do this. There is a way to present the the arguments of uh, Matthew chapter 7. We're looking at verses 1 through 13 today, um, but you could expand it to all of Matthew chapter 7. There is a way to present these verses in Matthew chapter 7 as one unified whole argument that makes sense altogether. Um, So when I say that these verses do not connect well together, you will find plenty of people who will connect them well together and and attempt to make them make sense. I'm actually resisting doing that. And I would encourage you to resist doing that um, and to think a little bit about what each of these things means individually. And the reason I say to resist that is because yes, Matthew has brought them together in this particular way But if we force too much agreement between all of these verses, then we make them say things that individually they're not trying to say. Um, So my approach in this lesson is going to be for us to kind of break apart these these, um, sections and talk about the cluster of ideas that come in them. Um, And sometimes they're not well connected. Um, There's points in this where I don't don't see a clear connection at all between the verses. Um, So where those exist, um, rather than forcing a connection, um, I want us to kind of think about how those verses sit by themselves so structurally it's hard to work through these verses because in some ways it feels like um, you you could think of jesus as just kind of handing out fortune cookies um, to a crowd like it's just at points it feels like just whatever piece of wisdom comes out that's what the crowd's getting um, so we're going to talk about that as we go through too um, and then uh, the reason some of these problems exist as i've already mentioned in the introduction we have um, the issue of sources and how matthew is using his sources um, and we see in looking at Luke um, and the Gospel of Mark, but primarily Luke with the, with this um, particular passages today and in the sermon, um, Matthew pulls pieces from other parts and puts them in here or removes pieces that appear to be together in Luke. And so uh, that's the reason why we have some of these structural difficulties as we go through. Um, if you're interested in the problem of, or the question of the relationship of Mark and Matthew and Luke and Q and how they all fit together, if you're wanting to do more study on it, these verses would be a really good exercise for you to start with, is to start with these verses, to look up where parallel passages occur in Matthew and Luke, um, and then kind of chart out where those verses have been moved to, how they've been rearranged. Um, and this is just a really good exercise for you to kind of see um, how that happens. So um, we last week, we looked at the um, Matthew, the end of Matthew, chapter six. We talked about the connection between wealth. Um, It was wealth and worship, which essentially means wealth and service. Who are you serving or what are you serving with your money and wealth? And then the other part of it is wealth and worry. So how does wealth and how do possessions actually end up causing you more worry maybe than they're worth? Um, in the end. So that's kind of the end of the Sermon on the Mount that, that we've ended with and now leads us into the section that we're going to look at today, which is begins with a section on do not judge. So you can see already, um, as I've mentioned, that there's not a clear segue between don't, don't spend your time worrying about how you're going to provide your own food and live and, and uh, look at the lilies of the field and how beautiful they are. Oh, and by the way, don't judge other people it's not a smooth transition. So in some ways, it, we have to think about how these verses do fit together, but then also how they don't. Um, so that's where we, that's where we're coming from. That's the setup for where we're going, for where we lead into here. One other thing I want to do a quick callback um, for you to keep in mind, because as I said, Matthew has brought these verses together, so we can give some um attention to how they're functioning within their context, um, altogether. So I want to recall your mind back to Matthew, the beginning of Matthew chapter six, and what we labeled as the hypocrite pattern. Um, And that was, don't be like a hypocrite, because hypocrites try to please people. um, And if they try to please people, then they already have their reward. And then to flip that the inverse was instead be like this and then the second part of that was try to please God, and then if you please God, God will be the one that rewards you instead, so that's kind of the the hypocrite pattern that we've talked about um, in those previous verses, so keep that in mind, because the hypocrite pattern loosely appears in these coming verses, but the term hypocrite itself um, comes up in these verses, and so that's a very obvious callback Um, by Matthew to kind of link these ideas together. And because they're linked together by this common shared word, this keyword of hypocrite, um, I want us to kind of read those in context together. So let's look at Matthew chapter seven, um, verses one through six. So we'll begin by reading. Um, I will read just these six verses and then offer a, a few comments on them. And then we'll pause for discussion. So Matthew chapter seven, verse one, do not judge others, and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eyes when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. So you can already see within this passage itself, right? We've noted the transition that doesn't work well from the end of chapter six to just the abrupt command to do not judge others. Um, but you can also get a sense in verse six when we get there, we'll talk about it a little more, but you get a sense in verse six already. Um, that that's a strange transition from focus on the pull the log from your own eye and don't focus on the speck in your friend's eye to all of a sudden, don't throw your pearls before pigs. Um, so it's, it's, you, you pick up on a little of the abruptness that comes in these verses. So here's a couple of the things I want us to just think about as we go through Matthew chapter seven. Um, the first is following kind of the hypocrite pattern that we've talked about from the early part of chapter six. Don't do this. Right. That's the kind of the classic one of the classic parts of that hypocrite pattern from Matthew chapter six. Don't be like the hypocrites who do this. So we get this command in Matthew seven, verse one. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Um, so the judgment here is. Um, can, can mean in the Greek, um, as we would think of just, being, of just judging something, like you're weighing out the situation evenly, you're deciding if something is right or wrong. Um, it can also mean in Greek, as it does in English, that essentially it means to condemn. It means to have already judged something. Um, we use it in English this way a lot. So for instance, when we say, I don't like when other people judge me, we're not saying that I don't like when other people weigh my my strengths and weaknesses and they make a fair judgment about who I am. That's not what we're saying. When we say, I don't like when people judge me, we're saying, I don't like when people make negative assumptions about me. I don't like when people already condemn me before they've properly judged or properly weighed these things. Um, so when it says do not judge here, the the instruction in Matthew 7 is not kind of a, um, there are no rules and there are no standards, and we can't assess whether anything is right or wrong. That's not what um, Jesus is getting at in these verses. Instead, the idea is um, do not jump to judgment. Do not jump to condemnation of other people, because if you condemn other people and judge too harshly, then you will be subject to that same level of judgment. You'll be subject to that same kind of harsh criteria of condemnation. So that's the idea of of what judgment means here. Um, In verses two and three, we get then the explanation, the reason why, the because um, of this, or I'm sorry, just verse two, we get the because, so do not judge or you will not be judged. And the verse two is, uh, for you will be treated as you treat other people. So it reflects then um, how we will be treated, the judgment that we will see, will, will receive. Um, this is not to, to go to the other extreme. This is not kind of a free pass of um, that we will be treated as we treat other people. So if I don't judge anybody else, then I, then I get a free pass for anything. Um, that kind of come turns into a, an idea of, of of you do what you want to do and I'll do what I want to do. And uh, we, we don't nobody has to hold anybody accountable. Um, right? That's not the idea again. The idea is not that there's no sort of standards or assessment anywhere. Um, but the idea is that the rigor that you apply in the judging will be the same rigor that is turned around and used on you um, in judgment as well. Uh, and so we'll come back to this, this verse two as well the idea of how you treat others is the way that you will be treated. We'll come back to that at verse 12 um, because. Verse 12 presents us with what's maybe one of the most famous parts of the, of the Gospels in general, the Gospels Gospel tradition, um, and that is the golden rule that you treat other people how you would like to be treated. And so uh, verse two kind of um, gives us the, the early glimpse of that, um, that, that common phrase. Verse three and four um, picks up the, the starkness of the hypocrite and actually gives us the example of what it means to, to be a hypocrite. Um, So why why are you worried about if there is a speck in your neighbor's eye when you yourself have a log in your own? Um, The correction here, there's various ways of kind of reading this um, of how the relationship works between removing the log from your own eye and then helping others. Um, Essentially what this is asking is to begin with, why are you even concerned that there is a speck in your brother or your sister's eye if you yourself have this log in your own. Um, so it's a, it's a call for retrospection or introspection, I'm sorry, um, introspection on how you are behaving um, yourself, how you are judging your own self, making assessments about your own self before you're turning to even make those assessments and weigh the, weigh the, the life of other people. Uh, so the question is to begin with, why is this even a matter to you? If this other thing already exists in your own life, Um, that is um, that is kind of out of control or beyond control Uh, what behaviors then um, do I need to do I need to fix that becomes the essential question uh, that we have to ask ourselves Um, if what in this particular passage, what is this log that is in my eye? We might say that it, that it applies to any particular shortfalling that might come up. So it might be any type of, of sin or entrapment or whatever that, that is holding you, um, that is interrupting your relationship with God. But I think it's more specific than that in this verse. Um, And the reason why I think it is more specific than that is because I think Matthew um, has put um, these verses here, right, of the judging together. Um, So I think that the idea of judgment and proper judgment is probably what Matthew has in mind here. The log that is in your own eye in this passage is the log of judgment. It's the law of being too harsh, of being overly critical, uh, and being um, kind of um, condemnatory towards other people. So this desire to judge people, um, I think, already reveals a shortcoming that exists in you. Um, If there is this um, uh, kind of proclivity towards jumping to condemnation of other people and making judgments of them, that already begins to reveal that there is a sort of misalignment in the relational value between the values uh, between you and between other people that you would be willing to make these judgments and condemnations of them. And I think it also probably reveals a misalignment as well between you and God, uh, because when the relationship between you and God is out of alignment, then that interrupts and and misaligns those other relationships as well. Um, So I think in this passage, following on the command to not judge, and then now the command to to engage in self-reflection, I think that self-reflection is a call to self-reflection about what the move towards condemnation actually reveals about your own self. Why are you judging people? You're judging people because it actually reflects back on yourself and kind of the misalignment that exists between you and God. So I think in context, that's how I would read these verses specifically, is it could be a general command to, before you offer any type of rebuke of somebody for any particular situation, you check yourself that you're not committing that same exact thing. But I think in general, it's, it's more a broader concern that before you make a condemnation of anybody on anything, you should reflect on yourself of why you're making this judgment to begin with and what does that reveal about you. Um, the remedy for this then is that first in um, verse five, um, we get the... the uh, the insult, the direct, um, the direct address here of the hypocrite. So that's where I've related this back to chapter six. Um, so the, the command or the call that you are now a hypocrite. And then the instruction is given on how to remedy this. The first step is that you go in and you remove this log from your own eye. And then, so it's a two-step process. First remove the, the, the log from your own eye, and then you will see well enough Um, to to, um, deal with the the speck in your friend's eye. What this instruction is not, is this instruction is not first remove the log from your own eye, and now you're free to go back to the condemnation that you were going to to make, right? The the command, the the, um, accusation of hypocrisy here is not to fix the hypocrisy. The command is not to Don't be a hypocrite by judging this person while you yourself are committing it. So stop committing it and now go and judge that person. Um, The command is to to stop with the judgment altogether. So the command is not remedy yourself so you can better judge other people. The command is remedy yourself. And in that remedy, you're going to recognize how your judgment is reflective of your own shortcomings. And that's actually going to affect how you would want to judge other people. Um, So that's the idea is that that, um, as we move into this, you're removing this log from your own eye and in removing this, you see more clearly, you see more rightly. And when you see more rightly, you see how that judgment is interfering with your relationship with that other person and reflective of, um, as I said, your misalignment and your relationship with God. So I think in thinking about this, the speck and the log analogy that um, we've probably all heard applied in various situations and heard plenty of sermons and lessons on as well, um, is that it's important for us to take away from this, that the idea is not about dealing with a specific sin with a person and making sure we're not committing that specific sin. Uh, I think the instruction is before you commit the sin of being judgmental on other people, you should stop and think about what that, what that tendency is even revealing about your own shortcomings as you go and then we get um, as I've already mentioned and hinted at verse six uh, that it that we get a very kind of odd um, verse here Um, I had um, looking at uh, a couple commentaries on this Ulrich Ulrich Luce who is a a, um, New Testament scholar, well-respected New Testament scholar, um, in his commentary on Matthew in this on these particular verses, essentially says um, that the the verse itself is a puzzle, the meaning of the verse is unclear, and how this verse relates to the surrounding verses is a complete mystery. So Luce's um, assessment of these verses is that essentially all of it is unknown and it's a mystery. Um it's um, in some ways, I think it's it's easy to agree um, with that assessment, and and uh, there's there's definitely merit to it. I don't think we should force too much meaning um, on these verses, um, but what I want us to caution us about um, as we're reading these verses is that one of the great ironies, as I read these verses and think about how I've heard them used in my just in my own anecdotal experience, my own um, church examples and things like that. Um, the irony of these verses is that the way that I've heard them used and when they're most often cited in discussions or arguments, um, they actually end up, verse 6 ends up contradicting the whole point of chapters 7, 1 through 5. So 7, 1 through 5, the whole instruction is don't judge other people, and if you think that you need to judge other people, then you need to pause for some self-reflection. Um, and then I've often heard verse 6 be used exactly for judging other people. Um, to say well we don't need to worry about dealing with that person because why are we going to throw our pearls before pigs um, in this particular translation um, it translates this as um, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy uh, the actual verse is that to 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 it uh, doesn't say on people who are unholy it says before dogs um, so the, the insults that come here are comparison to dogs and pigs um, so as i said the irony is that when I've often heard these used, it's been used exactly for the purposes that the preceding five verses tell us not to be engaged in. Here's how I would suggest a, is one way that we could apply these verses if we're attempting to make sense of what they mean in relationship to the preceding verses. Um, and that is that instead of us thinking about other people as the pigs and the dogs in these verses, um, let us stop and think about ourselves as the pigs and the dogs um, in these verses. So. Let us think that this verse doesn't tell us um, when we can give in to our tendencies to, to judge. It's not permission for us to decide who is a pig and who is a dog and that these people are unworthy of whatever. They're unworthy of receiving the gospel. They're unworthy of grace. They're unworthy of mercy. They're unworthy of generosity, whatever it might be. Let us not use them to say that that's the case, but instead let us think about um reflecting on the previous five verses are we in our judgment and in our condemnation are we not becoming and behaving like the pigs and the dogs are we not the things are we not the people who are engaging in trampling the precious things underfoot Um, and for me I think I think one of those precious things we might think of um, is the relationship with people and in judging other people and trampling those relationships with other people are we not then trampling the very important things that god has given us and and the very important things that for whom the very important people for whom christ has died um so i i would take these very difficult verses in verse six um and say let's not think about how we can apply these to other people let's think about how we can apply them to ourselves in light of the previous five verses How do we avoid being the pigs and the dogs and how do we avoid trampling and turning against God in our attacks against him by the way that we interact and treat, uh, interact with other people and treat other people. So I think we should read these verses as kind of with kind of an eye towards, with a pun intended, uh, with an eye towards our own relationships with people and our own relationships with God and how those might be inhibiting either our relationship with God um, or our relationship with people as well. So let's look. I want to ask a couple questions real quick for us, for discussion's sake, um, and then I'm going to to pause the video and let all of you on Zoom discuss um, these questions, and then we'll then we can unpause and resume um, once once our discussion leaders think we're ready. So the two questions I would ask for you are: first, why are we prone to see the mistakes in other people but ignore our own? Um, what what tendency? What human tendency makes us do that? What psychological tendency makes us do that? Why is that even a problem for us? Why is the hypocrisy of seeing other people do something and judging it, yet refusing to see our own, why is that an issue for us? The second question I would ask is what are situations within the church where we, we might easily condemn the speck in someone else's eye instead of trying to restore relationship? So where are those tendencies where... Um, I think, you know, with unbelievers and people outside of the church, we're often willing to extend a lot of grace and to build a lot of relationship. But somebody within the church does something and we're like, that's it, like that crosses the line. Uh, So what are a couple examples that you can think of where we might too easily jump to that condemnation of another person instead of thinking, I'm not sure what that person's doing. I'm not sure I agree with them even, but how can I go and ask them and have a relationship with them? And how can I how can we talk through this and and, and do this in a restorative way? Um, so I think that's the question the, the the two questions I would pose to you. Um, so let's let's look at um, the remaining verses, Matthew chapter seven verses seven through eleven. Um, we're going to move through these verses quicker. Um, as I mentioned, they're kind of sporadic. Um, they're not as well connected as kind of the previous cluster that focuses on judgment, so we can kind of talk about the theme of the overall verses. I think here in these verses, we get um, kind of a lot more of a mixed um, content. So, and in some ways they're, they're more self-explanatory. So we'll kind of move quickly through these and just spend a couple minutes on them. Um, But in Matthew 7, Beginning in Matthew 7, we get a pretty popular verses, and I mean, I keep saying that, but that's because the Sermon on the Mount is, is itself one of the most popular passages of the Gospels, um, so there's a reason why this, um, why all of these passages are so common to Christian teaching and Christian, Christian tradition, uh, so I want to read um, verse 7 uh, through 11 very quickly, and then we'll offer a few comments. So verse 7, ask and you will receive what you ask for, seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to you, uh, to those who ask him? So let's go back to verse, um, begin in verse seven. I think this is um, maybe one of the verses where uh, a really critical modern audience begins to get uncomfortable, Um, because again, we're going back to the idea of rewards, we're going back to the the question of doing things in order to get treasure, Um, and all of these verses fall in line with any type of discomfort that has arisen um, from the previous verses as well. I think an additional discomfort is added to this because uh, there's perhaps um, no more, no New Testament passage that's more susceptible to being exploited um, for the idea of um, prosperity gospel or the idea of getting everything we want. There's maybe no more exploitable um, passage for bad theology and for poor exegesis than these verses. Uh, because taken at face value, what they say is what they mean, and that is that ask God for anything, and anything you ask for, you will get it. Um, so essentially, that just turns God into, uh, you know, into a, a Santa Claus of whatever we ask for, we're going to get, and that's the end of story. So the, so the most successful Christians are the most faithful Christians because that shows that God is giving them everything that they've asked for. The difficulty with this reading and the counter to this reading is that we have to read these verses in context. And so in context, what is the idea of asking? Uh, if we think about within the Sermon on the Mount, where else have we talked about asking? Where else have we talked about receiving? Where else have we talked about seeking? Um, And the answer to that is that all of those, that previous idea has occurred in the context of prayer, uh, particularly in the Lord's Prayer, as I've already mentioned, that the Lord's Prayer forms kind of the center of this Sermon on the Mount, and it expands outward from Uh, from there. So kind of the tentacles of the Lord's Prayer are reaching out to all of these verses. So I think when we read this passage about asking and knocking and seeking, we have to read it in light of the Lord's Prayer. Um, And in many ways, it's not that different than um, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, which talk about give us this day our daily bread or forgive us our debts. Um, These are the same things that in those verses we see, except they're just a little bit more abstracted. Instead of us, give us today our daily bread, which is an ask, Instead of a specific ask, we just have the general question of ask and you will receive what you ask for. Um, So I think we have to read it in light of those um, in light of those passages that verses seven through eight, seven and eight are giving us the idea of essentially the Lord's prayer and encouraging us towards prayer in our time of need. So then what does that mean with the, the following verses? Uh, then verses nine through 11 actually give us kind of an example to help us put some um, tangible um, aspects onto what it means to ask and to pray. And the the imagery that Matthew chooses to use, which means that this is the imagery that Matthew wants us to think in when we are thinking of prayer. The imagery he uses is the imagery of parenting, the imagery of a parent and child relationship. Um, And so Matthew just says that even those of you who are evil, um, if a child comes to you and they ask for a loaf of bread, are you going to give them a loaf of bread? Or are you going to give them a stone? If they come to you and ask for a fish, are you going to give them a fish? Or are you going to give them a snake? Um, the, the, the argument that Matthew makes from this is a lesser to greater argument, that if these things are true in the lesser degree, they're going to be even more true in the greater degree. So if these things are true for you who are sinful and evil people how much more so are they going to be for the heavenly and the divine and the perfect father? Um, And so essentially it provides us a, a comfort. The verses seven and eight tell us that when we are in need and have requests, we are to take them before God Verses 9 through 11 then tell us that when we do take them before God, we can expect that God is going to receive them as a parent, Um, and not just any parent, not as an earthly parent who already gives good gifts to their children, but as a heavenly father who does abundantly more um, for those he loves. loves. So the example here that that he provides with this parent-child relationship um, is essentially explanatory, and it's also contextual. Um, it's explanatory and that it, it illustrates why we can expect good things from God. And it's contextual in the sense of that it's giving us the context. It's giving us the framework that we're to think in when we're praying. So we're not to think in the abstract of uh, maybe the, the pagan gods offering um, incense and sacrifices to, to appease angry gods. We're to think in the framework of a parent and a child, in the framework of a child asking their loving father Uh, Or their loving parent for something. And then we get um, verse 7, or verse chapter 7, verse 12, um, which, as I've said multiple times throughout this in previous lessons, is one of the most, if not the most popular um, gospel passages. And that is do to others whatever you would have them do to you. This is the essence essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Um, This is referred to most commonly as the golden rule. Um, Not only is it popular in Christianity, the golden rule has various forms throughout other religions, Um, it has various forms throughout other philosophies, um, uh, ancient philosophies that we even find in the ancient world predating Christianity. Um, So in many ways, this principle is not necessarily a Christian principle. But what makes it Christian um, here is, well, there's two things that make it, one that makes it distinct to Christianity, one that makes it semi-distinct from the other occurrences in the ancient world. The first that makes it distinct to Christianity is the, the use of it here by Jesus in the context of the Sermon on the Mount that provides it the actual meaning of everything that it means. And so when we're told to do to others whatever we would like them to do to you, This isn't just a command for us to think about how we want other people to treat us. It occurs in the example of the Sermon on the Mount, where the Sermon on the Mount, has, as I've been presenting, have been arguing all along that our relationship with other people and our relationship with God are of extreme importance. And so that relationship with God, uh, or excuse me, that relationship with other people, I think governs what we read this verse as. So instead of us thinking about, I'm going to be treated the way that I want other people to treat me, by doing things to them, the command here is actually the opposite. The command here is not for me to think about how I want to be treated. The command is actually for me to take the initiative and begin thinking about how I'm going to treat other people. So the first step of this is to do to other people what you would like them to do to you. So the first part of this is the initial command that we are to go out and do good to other people. And then if we say, well, I don't know what's good or bad, Um, then we get the measure and the good or the bad, the way that we measure that is decide, is this something that I would want done to me? Um, So essentially the love command in a positive form as Jesus gives it here, um, the golden rule as Jesus gives it in a positive form is for us to take the initiative to do good to other people. And that's it. We're not doing good so that other people do good for us. We're doing good and we're deciding what that good is based on whether this is something I would want done to me or not. Um, The other thing I said that makes it semi unique um, here is that many of the other occurrences of the golden rule um, in the ancient world. are negative, are formed negative. So instead of do to others, it's actually reversed and it is do not do to other people what you would not want them to do to you. So it's a slight difference, um, but the emphasis falls in the way that it's constructed in Matthew here, the emphasis falls on us willfully doing those things rather than waiting um, or rather than trying to avoid things. So that we can think again of what it means to be in relationship with other people and what it means for us to apply this principle, not thinking, how do I do good to others so they will treat me well, but how do I do good to others? And I do good to them by doing the things that I would want other people to do to me. So a couple discussion questions for us to think on real quick. Uh, The first would be, how do instructions on asking, seeking, and knocking relate to the Lord's prayer? So I've mentioned earlier that um, in our previous lecture two weeks ago that we were going to be returning to the Lord's Prayer and asking questions based on reflection on the Lord's Prayer. So how do these, um, I've given two examples of how I think it relates to the asking um, for daily bread and for forgiveness of debts, but how might be other ways that this connects to the Lord's Prayer? And then the second is um, how then should we respond Um, emotionally, intellectually, or spiritually to our prayer requests that appear to go unanswered or not be answered in the way that we asked. So thinking about Matthew uh, 7, verses 7 and 8, the question is, um, ask and you will receive. So what happens when we ask and we do not receive? How do we respond to that emotionally, intellectually, spiritually? What's our response to those things when scripture says one thing and our life experience appears to be telling us something different. I hope that as we've gone through this lesson and talked about all of this that that we can see how deeply concerned Jesus' is teaching are not only about our relationship with God not only about our relationship with him as a father and in asking and depending on him but also in our relationship with other people and that the relationship between other people and ourselves is an important component and a component an important reflection on what that, what our relationship with God is. And so we shouldn't separate those two, but we should instead use them kind of as mutually reinforcing, but then also as a measurement for each other to judge how well either of those relationships is going and to know when we need to offer some sort of corrective.
1: Grace and peace, and uh, welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast uh, that kicks off our weekly pattern of learn, live, love, and lead, and uh, we are uh, talking about Matthew 7, and, and all Eastertide, we've been talking about zoom out, uh, and as we're kind of finishing up and getting close to the end of this, there's, there's some aspects where we want to zoom in, and I wonder what, what all of that has meant for, for y'all.
2: I mean, so the the idea of the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's it. If you go up a mountain, you kind of have to see a bigger picture, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of what yeah. we've been invited to do with this series: is to to recognize that that there are inherited things, there are understandings that that we are needing to to not necessarily let go of, maybe, um, but. at, at, at bare minimum it's what Jesus has invited the 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 hearers to do throughout this sermon is to to just take a bigger picture of it mm-hmm. of okay let's 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 get the why behind something let's really see the context of it let's 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 pick it apart a little bit so that we can can more fully live into it um, by opening up our perspective because um, that's we, we can only see things from our lens. Um, there's only the only one perspective we truly have and the Part of the work of discipleship is to, to broaden that, mm-hmm. whether that's understanding scripture differently, whether that's understanding someone else's experience. It's why we do life together groups, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is so that we live in, in community with, with each other and that, that Jeremy and I might have a completely different experience with a text or or, or an occurrence that, that I can then zoom out some by, by hearing that. So mm-hmm. this week is interesting though, because it it kind of helps us zoom back in. It, it, it makes it personal again for nice. a second. Um, um, to, to go, okay. Now, now what? Now, what is our what is our response? What is our responsibility? Um, and that's what these last few um, uh, verses invite us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. So, um, so what? What are these expectations? What What do we start seeing here in Matthew seven? Well, it's interesting
3: because I, I if I refer back to a few weeks ago, with um, when we started this, um, Jad, you talked about Ben saying the so what. That's what we right. learned. Mm-hmm. Like, like when we get to the end of a sermon, mm-hmm. our preaching professor would always say, well, so what? What do you want mm-hmm. me to do with that? And it's interesting because I think this is where Jesus is asking them the so what? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I've taught you mm-hmm. all these things mm-hmm. and you can see it. Like what what point was it to zoom out? Let mm-hmm. me zoom in mm-hmm. for a minute. Um, when he's talking about judgment, mm-hmm. like why do you see the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own? Mm-hmm. How can you say, let me take the splinter of your eye when there's a log in your own <laughs> eye? Like. <laughs> you know, zoom back in for a minute and realize mm-hmm. that you're always picking on other people, but haven't you been kind of, don't you need to zoom out and see the perspective right. a little bit better? Yeah. So it's interesting, it's this dualistic movement mm-hmm. of of mm-hmm. Jesus saying, mm-hmm. take what you learned from out here, this big perspective mm-hmm. I've given you, now let's get into your daily life right? and right. see where the rubber meets the road in some respects. Mm-hmm. And
1: within the this text in and of itself, seven, like one through six, uh, you know, there's, we've been talking about it throughout the sermon series. It's, it, it, it's zoom out because, you know, Jesus isn't dismissing the scripture that he's referring to. You right. have heard it said, right. but I tell you, he's not dismissing it in any way, shape, or form. He's expanding yes. it. And so that cause, that expansion causes us then, I would, I, mean, I think you're right, Jen, to say, okay, so then what does it mean for me? And the, the plank in the eyes piece is so very real because there's so much of Christianity that is so focused in on on a text and judgmentalism and condemning and condemning and condemning and condemning. And they don't hear Jesus saying, yeah, but I have told you. Mm
2: -hmm. And so he
1: brings it back down for us uh, and really transformative, hard to, hard, so hard to walk ways.
3: I think that this particular, so we've been talking about deconstructing mm-hmm. um, and, and de- people who are deconstructing their faith and deconstructing kind of that judgmental faith that they were, were, were raised in. And, and this, this passage, this, this chapter um, gets into some of those icky things mm-hmm. where we've taken what we think Jesus meant and turned it into something that was very exclusionary, yeah. you know, go in through the narrow gate, the gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide, and we've taken all that to mean, that means belief in Jesus, which, and then every, everyone else narrow is way stuck of thinking. on the other side, yeah. right? Yeah. And how do, we, how do we deconstruct this in a way that helps people um, as we've tried to say before, not throw it all out, Mm -hmm. um, but to see a new nuance in it. What do we do with this hard scripture that's here? The entrance requirements is the subheading. The the
1: thing that we've been trying to get out throughout the sermon series is deconstruction is a beautiful, powerful thing. That's rabbinic, right? It's not destroy. Um, And so for me, as I was saying on, on the first part about judgment, that's so hard to do. That's what I hear. Uh, as I take up all, all of the other inherited and embedded theology that I've been given, I, guess I see this, this 13 and 14 as this is the hard journey to walk in the redemptive life of Jesus. It's not an, a narrow way of thinking or a narrow understanding of God's grace and mercy. It's, it's, it's the difficult journey. That this is realistic, that Jesus is being realistic. It, it, it's hard. I've heard, you, you have heard it said, but I tell you, that's, that's, a, that's a more difficult way of living. It's a transformative way of living, but that's mm-hmm. not always easy.
2: But back up a few verses, <laughs> because right before we talk about going in through the narrow gate, we're first, depending on where you're coming from, either given permission or instructed to ask, search and knock. Yeah, right. Because mm-hmm. if you've been told, you know, the Bible said it, that settles it, don't ask questions, that's now giving you permission to do so. Right. And not even permission, like you can ask, no, it is ask, that is a declarative sentence. Right. Ask, search, knock. (laughs) Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks, the door is opened. Mm -hmm. Now it doesn't, now what's on the other side of that door is where we go from there. But I I don't wanna miss that, that yeah, it gets gets hard and and around this, but in the midst of these really hard texts, we get this this instruction to do the work. Mm Right, and the next thing is
1: the narrow gate.
4: I think what's wild is you talk about um, how, talk about the narrow gate, uh, people equate that to meaning Jesus. It's funny how each individual church can see that sometimes it's believing in Jesus how they believe in Jesus. So don't even (laughs) open it up to uh, people who don't believe uh, or don't follow the Christian faith. A lot of people just get stuck in their perception of what it means to follow Jesus.
1: which yeah. is narrow-mindedness, right. not a narrow
2: path. Right. Sure.
3: Well, and it, and I love that. So I love the narrow path and the narrow gate because for me, what it says, based on everything that we've learned the last few weeks, is it means yeah. you don't get to just do anything you want. Right. Sure. Sure. You, you, you don't get to say, okay, I believe in Jesus, and then I just get to... I, I get to make as much money as I want and never ever give anything to the poor. I don't have to worry about the oppressed. I don't have, like, Jesus is like, no, it's narrow. Like there's a path. And, and truthfully, if he's our rabbi and we're following in his footsteps, it, it, it doesn't give us a lot of leeway to go on detours of our own. Mm-hmm. That's the way I look at it, yeah. is that it's a narrow gate because I don't get to just go through any door I want to of how I live my life. Mm-hmm. In Jesus' name.:
2: It goes back to our understanding of sanctification too, mm-hmm. as that, that choice to partner with God. Mm-hmm. that when we were, when we were under prevenient grace and not yet aware of God's presence in our life, we had a, the, the, the gate was wide, the, mm-hmm. the, the road was broad. Mm-hmm. But when we have made that choice and we have received God's, God's justifying grace and we are partnering with God's sanctifying grace, that the options get narrower. <laughs> yeah. of, uh, the, the, the choices mm. that I have to make, if I am faithful to that, the yeah. options really get narrower.
1: Yeah. Well, for me, it's that river, right? <laughs> I talked about a couple right. weeks ago. The river's going somewhere. Right. Uh, and, and I've gotta be willing to, to stay within mm-hmm. the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And it's not easy. Again, for me, that image is, well, there's white water ahead. Life isn't gonna be perfect and easy. It's gonna be yeah. difficult.
2: Uh, and hard what I'm doing with my time mm-hmm. what I'm doing with my money right what I'm doing with all of, of my my emotional mm-hmm, energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm the choices that I have to make really narrow down because my time needs to be spent focused on I, I need to be in worship I need yeah. to be in a in, in a discipleship group I need to be uh, you know using my money for you know, whatever money I have small or large that that it is it is not just about me it is not right. just about my wants so it, it right. that's the narrowness I well, think about, and the, oh sorry the, just, na- just, the narrowness of our allegiance
3: because yeah. I mean he's really inviting us yeah I love the, the citizenry of the kingdom mm. of God that Jesus clearly says is different than the citizens, citizenry of the world. Yeah. yeah. If I pledge my allegiance to God, to Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and the kingdom of God, yeah. it really narrows things. Yep. Mm-hmm. How I decide, how I vote, how I live, it calls me to a smaller gate. Than, than the world. It's not yeah. exclusion of mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. No, it's no. exclusion mm-hmm. of the world's stuff. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy, no, you're go good. Ahead. You're
4: good. I guess I think about that, as you say all that, Melissa. The thing that comes directly into my mind, if you, and, and I think this is one of the things that would be most difficult for each of us, someone, someone you're communicating with, and they just straight up disrespect you. Mm-hmm. If you have decided that your allegiance is to Christ. Yep. Your options for how to <laughs> respond become narrow. Yep. There, there are only so many ways yep. that, if, if you, if even in that situation with what has been done or said, you identify your job to be a a source of love and respect and uh, and mercy in the world. The things that you can say that communicate that, <laughs> even in your even in your state of frustration yes. or offense or like they become narrow. Um,
1: and counter to what the world expects. Right. And counter to what your own desiring expects mm-hmm. and your own reaction, Yeah, you're called to respond.
3: Ooh, Jeremy, that just put it right there <laughs> 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 on the table, I think in the most powerful way, because I think that's, that in how I spend my money, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the who I back,
4: mm-hmm. you know. Don't let it be in front of a, in front of an audience. No. You know what I mean. Don't let it be in front it's of an true. audience. That someone. Mm-hmm. That someone. You know what I mean. It, it, yeah. it becomes difficult, and so we have those real life, real time decisions to make about which gate we're going to enter. Like I, I don't think like, I think that we are many times like uh, walking a path where we all of a sudden get presented with this wide gate that we can veer off the path and just go that wide way. And we have that that, that moment by moment, day by day choice of which path we're going to stay on. It's not just a, I decide today that I'm on the narrow path. Mm -hmm. I decide today that I'm committed. But it is a moment by moment, minute by minute, second by second thing. And that's that's the thing that makes it so difficult. And those
3: moment by moment mean, too, because the gate is narrow. I'm going to have to drop some of the stuff I picked up along the way because it's not going to fit with me through this gate. Right. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to, my power and control that says, oh, this is how I'm going to come back at you. Right? I have to let go of in right. order to fit through the gate that Jesus right. is walking through and says, come on this way. Don't go that way. Right. Don't go left or right. Come this way. And I have to go, my hands are too full. My
4: hands are too full. Ugh. My hands are yeah. too full. Or you can say No. I love this much I more. I love this much more. I love this perception of myself as someone who mm-hmm. uh, handles people. I love this or that so much. And so I'm going to, I'm going to walk through this wide gate right now.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna come back at you with a backhand that holds my money right. or my status right. or my, you know, right. I, it's got a hold of, you know, who I am that I wield my power with.
1: And, yeah. yeah. I mean protect me, make me feel better about myself.
2: Immediately after this narrow gate passage, we we get the tree producing fruit, Uh. right? So, so, so that's what we're talking about. Right, right. So it, it, it's even more just going back to the mis, misuse and misinterpretation of this. Yeah. It's right, right here. Yeah. It yeah. is right, right. here. Yeah. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. You will know them by their fruit. That's what, yeah. that's but, what we're talking about. But, here. but Melissa, I, I have to, I'm, I'm gonna say
3: it on this podcast that people can hear. Mm-hmm. I've been called a false prophet by people who have left our church. Mm. We have been called. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get real vulnerable mm. and I don't want us to cut this out because I'm going to name it. Mm-hmm. People have left our church because did, they didn't think our gate was, most, was narrow enough yeah. Yeah. Mm. and called us false prophets and said they could, which I respect, I respect and love that that's the, ge- the gate that Jesus is calling them to go to. And, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. That is, oh, sure. that is, and, and God honoring for them and their faith. But I struggle with being able, you, and you can call me a false prophet all you want to, that's fine. Yeah. Right. But the church, what St. Luke's is doing, when I look at the fruit that's being produced, yes. Even when I question, did we do the wrong thing? Have I said the wrong thing? Are we are we on the wrong path? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I I have asked myself in the middle of the night, am I wrong? Did Jesus not call me because I'm a woman, and maybe I've gotten it all wrong over 20 some years of ministry? I've asked myself that more times than you can count. Maybe I'm the one that's wrong. But when I look at the fruit mm-hmm. that is being born of St. Luke's, mm-hmm. and 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 people who are. Coming out of poverty and mm-hmm, who have mm-hmm. stability in their homes and are recovering from addiction and mm-hmm. deconstructing their faith, I keep going. Oh no, Jesus, you are. This is your church. Yes, this yep. is your church, and there is nothing false about that. Yeah. That's right. And
1: I, I, uh, uh, ah, yeah.
3: which is so helpful because it does sometimes. You do wonder, did
2: did we did we open the wrong door? Right. When people who have felt mm. unloved mm. feel loved. Mm. Mm-hmm. That is Jesus.
1: That is good fruit. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah. we can get into the concrete fruit of housing and feeding and all of that, but but just at the bare bones of people who felt unloved, mm. feeling loved.
4: Mm. Who felt unloved by God.
2: By God. Yeah, not by God. even by us.
4: Not by even by, by us. By God, yeah.
3: Yeah. And and to find their lives being used for God's purpose yeah. mm-hmm. as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I am not demonizing. I I love the people who you know. I love the well, churches of they've gone to. But that's, look at that's, your
4: that's, commitment to living. To, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> but right. no, but this no. Is yeah, I but look it. At, but yes. that's what I'm saying. But look at the commitment, because there isn't even. The the uh, you don't take the opportunity in this moment to demonize and to no. uh, and to tear down those who's uh, who who have taken the, an opportunity to do it. Cheap. in this space and towards you specifically right mm-hmm. but there's a commitment to say no i am a force of love and peace and the kingdom of god in this world and that's how i'm going to behave and so it's just funny that we get an example of that on the podcast as we talk about it <laughs> yeah, right? well
3: yeah. and i think as we move through this time in our denomination that's what's being said sure. about sure. and 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 i i want us to bear witness and have the fruit that allows people to to go, no, no, there's there, we, yeah, we have planks in our eyes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we don't do everything right, but there is there is a movement of the spirit that 's happening to be United Methodists and to claim what it means. Mm-hmm to live into this love and this grace that we preach about and personal holiness and social holiness and, and all of those things. Um, and, and I don't believe we're splitting. I think we're replicating. I think that's yeah. what God is doing in the Spirit's doing in a new way. But, but to be able to go, no, not only are we producing fruit, but we're producing fruit because we are holding to Scripture, to God's Word, to Jesus, and to what it means to be Wesleyan. Mm-hmm. We're trying to live into it even when it feels... Hard and rough, and it feels like a really tight squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> huh, huh,
0: huh. Yeah. I don't yeah. know.
4: It just, I mean, it, every time we sit down and we really take time to look at this stuff, especially passages of scripture that have been like contentious for us, but like, just the idea of uh, the log and the plank in the eye, it just feels like if we all really believed that and then we applied it to how we move across the landscape of faith and all that's happening in the denomination, we would talk to each other a lot differently. We would go about being in the church a lot differently. Oh, yes. And we'd be able to say, oh, I, I don't agree with what you're doing at all, but. <laughs> you're a beloved child of God. Right, exactly. I don't agree with that at all. And we would just, I don't know, it just, that breaks my heart.
3: And that God will do something. Even in the midst of our disagreement, mm-hmm. even in the midst of us going separate ways, if we if we give blessing and honor to one another, God will God will take care of God's church because it's God's church. It's not ours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's right. not, John, not even John Wesley. Right. I, I, it's no. right. it's really God's church, right. and God's going to bless and honor and bring this beautiful kingdom of heaven to come, regardless of us.
2: Right. But I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I. I I want, you know, (laughs) that's my line. (laughs) Right? (laughs) We're we're speaking all of these beautiful things, but that's not what I want. That's not what I want to feel. I Mm. want to be mad at the the people who have questioned my call. I Mm. want to be, I want to lash back out. I want to condemn them. Mm. And so it is that day to day... You know, it's that day to day work of constantly making it's a choice. Mm. It is a choice. It is a choice I have to make. It is. It's mm. it's mm. going back to
3: the beginning. <laughs> Happy are the hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> Happier those who grieve. Happier those who humble. Happy am I when I'm hopeless. Yes. Mm. Because yep. I really want to be mad, yep. but I've got to be hopeless, and I've got to surrender it to God, yep. mm. and I've got to grieve that I really want to just rail against these yep. people, and that I can't, and I, which humbles me, which hun- you know, it gets yep. yep. that back to the beginning. Which mm-hmm. interesting
1: is is towards the end of this pericope, this section, um, it's doing God's will. Yeah. And, you know, this is another hard text that can be taken and and done in lots of different ways. Uh, On the Judgment Day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, uh, Mm. didn't the the prophecy in your name and expel demons and all this kind of stuff? And then "Then I'll tell you... I, you, I've never known you. Get away from, where, where's the text? I lost it. Where it talks about doing it says, the will of the It says, Lord, Father. Lord, we'll there get you know. into
3: the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will, will of, of my Father. Father I jump
1: past it. Mm-hmm. Who is in
2: heaven will Thank enter. You.
1: My eyes jump past it. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, that and will. and if, if we jump over to the Gospel of John, I'm going to make a quick jump of... You know that is where we hear Jesus say, "I am." Jesus doesn't say, "I am the gate." Here, Jesus no, says, "I am the right. gate." In John, correct, um, which is for a different, which is totally a different, different purpose, different right, and, right? And it's also in John that we hear, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." But either either place and and however you interpret it it, it, it it's not necessarily an exclusionary thing. It's a directive. Yeah. It's my way is the way. Mm-hmm what you see in me is the way mm-hmm. and so it's it's the same thing those who do the will of my father who is in heaven will enter uh, jesus even if we mm. even if we mash it up and say jesus is the narrow gate mm. it's his way that's the narrow gate it's not him it's not an exclusion it's mm-hmm. a choice to to follow its discipleship
3: and um, his way and his truth can be boiled, it's one thing. It's yes. love. Yes, It's love. That's it. And There's no so the way around it. Love is the narrow gate. Mm-hmm. Love is the yes. way. Love is the will, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we can parse out love to become justice, love to become mercy, love to become grace, but love is the author. Just like Christ-centered love then gets lived out through acceptance,
2: through hospitality, et cetera. So if the fruit is love, Right? The will is being done.
4: I'm curious. If we though, so we talk about, I don't wanna uh, get us all mucky, but if we talk about this idea of um, maintaining our presence and, and our, and our uh, commitment to being loved in the world, right? But then we look at this passage and we see that we're told to watch out for false prophets that are, that are dressed like sheep, but they're actually wolves, right? there seems to be a predatory, dangerous, you know what I mean, An right. implication there. And so what, do, I mean, in the midst of being forces of love in the world, how then do we handle wolves? You know what I mean? I, I guess I'm just curious, and what, what, what does love handling uh, a wolf look like? Mm. I guess I just wonder about.
3: I, it, well, the world says
4: mm-hmm.
3: it looks like power and But Jesus showed us how Mm -hmm. to handle the wolves, Mm -hmm. which was to love to the point of death on the Mm -hmm. cross. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's the love to the point of nonviolence, which is violent Mm -hmm. and aggressive. Mm -hmm. It's the love that is. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? No, for sure. It it is, I I shouldn't say violent, but powerful, Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. powerful Mm -hmm. and more. And I don't think we stay with that. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. every time if we look at the civil rights movement and other Mm -hmm. movements, uh, of, of the oppressed people. When we, when we handle it with nonviolence, yes, the world kills our leader.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That's been proven Therefore. since Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then we pick up our arms. Right. Our call is to pick up our arms and goes. that didn't work, so mm-hmm. let's go out fighting. And, and I just mm-hmm. continue to go, but Jesus is saying in these 50 days, no, 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 stay with love, stay with love. Stay and with look
2: with love. at what stay happened to love. the disciples after he went. Yes. Most of the disciples also ended up killed. Yeah, (laughs) right. So,
4: you know, um, and I think that this is just real life and it's emblematic of of our journey through life together. I kind of struggle with that. And maybe I'm supposed to. Mm -hmm. I think about... just the example that uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer gives in the midst of a Holocaust is, like, right. how many people do you let a cart run mm-hmm. over before you dismantle mm-hmm. the cart, you know? Right. And um, I, I do think there's an answer there, and I do think, but I don't know. I'm, I'm still wrestling and struggling with, um, because, yes, it is, we don't stick with that, right? Right. Th- there's this image in my head that I've been seeing, and it is the sheep. Like, it's a really striking image, the sheep being devoured by several wolves. And it's just kind of like, if if the sheep had a choice, you think it would really stay there and, and just allow itself to be devoured? And we see Jesus do that on the cross, but then just to wonder with all the complexity of human life. Hmm what that looks like for it. It's just such a, such a thing to wrestle with. Mm. Yeah. And I well, think
2: it, that looks different depending on your your place in, in yes. the world yeah. too. Yeah, of I course. think that's right. different for you than it is for me. Yeah, of course. And it's different from Jad than it is for yeah, Jen. Yeah, of course, like, right. of course. I think, so I think there's a different wrestling depending on you know, how we are embodied. Yeah, and, for sure, um, for sure. In, in race or gender or mm-hmm. orientation or yeah. whatever right. it might be too. So I think there's yeah. probably something Of course. we could go down that road too. Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure, but for um, sure. But
3: I would say, I think part of the reason we struggle with it you know, I got the image of, can you ever just domesticate a wolf? Mm. You know, can you ever love a wolf yeah. to not attack a sheep? Mm,
2: mm-hmm. You
3: know, and I have this, not to go down this metaphor, cause it'll probably break down any moment. <laughs> <I don't> know, <laughs> but like, I think, like I have a pit bull, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that I adopted that people are afraid of that are fighting. I mean, they're they're wired intrinsically to fight. And my dog is the most loving ridiculously stupid (laughs) 80-pound dog you've ever met, sweet, sweet baby, until the possum comes. Right. And then, you know, and so there is that, like intrinsically, if something is is pure evil, Mm -hmm. which what put uh, Jesus to the cross, racism, systemic racism, those things are evil. Mm -hmm. Sure but it says we will resist and, and stand up to it. And mm-hmm. the only way to do that is love. I think sometimes what we think though, when we hear love is a mamby pamby, lay down kind of love that's yeah. weak. Mm-hmm. And this is, a, this is a different kind of love. This, yeah, is, sure. this is a love that stands up mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. resists yeah, that's good. and is assertive. That's
4: good, yeah. That's good. Love that. Mm.
3: Whew. That was
2: a lot. A lot. I yeah. feel like
3: there should be another word. Probably. Therefore, mm. you will know them by their fruit probably is the only word. I think so. Mm-hmm. At the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, the fruit has to be love. All right. So next week we're going to come back and we're going to be looking um, uh Matthew uh, 8, I believe it is. We're going to be talking about the end of this. Actually, it's the end of it's Matthew seven. 7. It's mm-hmm. the end of Matthew 7. Mm-hmm. Um, but come back to worship and let's play with this as we seek to kind of punctuate the story through our love of the story and our rehearsal of worship.